Hello everyone, welcome to Audio Bookish. The book that we're going to be doing today is No Fixed Abode by Maeve McGinnigan. And I'll just quickly read out the book blurb for it. So this book will finally give a face and a voice to those we so easily forget in our society. It will tell the highly personal, human and sometimes surprisingly uplifting stories of real people struggling in a crumbling system. By telling their stories, we'll hope to know these people, to know their hopes and fears, their complexities and contradictions. We'll learn a little more about human relationships and all their messiness. We'll learn how, with just a little too much misfortune, any one of us could find ourselves homeless and even become one of the hundreds of people dying in Britain's streets. As the number of rough sleepers skyrockets across the UK, No Fixed Above by Maeve McGlendigan will bring to light many of the ad hoc projects attempting to address the problem. You'll meet some of the courageous people who dedicate their lives to saving forgotten of a society and see that the smallest act of kindness or affection can save a life. This is a timely, important book accompanying the wider themes of inequality, austerity measures through the prism of homelessness and offers a true picture of Britain today and shows how terrifying close we are to breaking point. And Poppy, do you want to read out Maeve's bio? Yes. So, based in Macclesfield, England, Maeve is an experienced investigative journalist who has written for BuzzFeed UK, The Guardian, the BBC, Vice News and others. She has worked with whistleblowers, leaked documents, large data sets and vulnerable sources. She joined the Bureau Local from Greenpeace's Energy Desk in 2017. Maeve has won many awards for her journalism, including the Bar Council's Legal Reporting Award, the Royal Statistical Society Award, and the Insight Through Journalism Award. She has been nominated for the Orwell Prize three times. At the Bureau Local, Maeve specialises in homelessness, housing, and employment. She ran the Bureau Local's award-winning hashtag Make Them Count and hashtag Locked Out investigations, is the author of No Fixed Abode, a result of her homelessness reporting, and is the creator and host of the Tip Off podcast. Maeve grew up reading the Northwich Guardian, and she is a big fan of the dog reporting of the Manchester Evening News. So this was one of my choices, and Mm -hmm. the reason I chose it is for a couple of reasons. I've got a kind of passing interest in housing and homelessness. So Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, I was a solicitor for many years, and I did quite a few housing cases. So I'm always quite interested in how kind of local authorities and the country as a whole is dealing with the homelessness issue. So when I kind of saw this book on the borrow box app, it just kind of caught my attention. And I think it's also quite timely book as well. So um, what, what were your kind of initial impressions of it, Poppy? Just from the kind of concept of it, the fact that it is this investigating homelessness and a large part of it investigating deaths on the streets, it's clearly not going to be the most happy kind of thing. And, you know, I'm normally into fiction stuff anyway. And when I do go into nonfiction, it's normally because I want to be taught about subjects that interest me, as in kind of how you think of subjects like education, so like science stuff and language stuff and things like that. So it's not usually what I would go for, but, you know, I'm always up for trying new things. And I think the blurb has it really well that you just read out where it says about surprisingly uplifting because I do think it was I was sort of expecting that I would be in a horrible pit of despair throughout all of it and to the end of it and I wasn't and that's not to say it's not very sad very tragic gruesome in a lot of places there are bad things about it but it's not 
the overall tone that you get from it, I don't think. The subtitle here is Life and Death Among the UK's Forgotten Homeless. And I think that's a big part. It isn't, although the project was about deaths, I think the book does show the life of homeless people, the lives that they lead. So yeah, I think if you're sort of like me and you're, you don't usually go for, I guess, you know, depressing stuff, as, as selfish as that is, you don't kind of always want that. I don't think you should be afraid of it. I think it is some tough moments, but it, it is an mostly hopeful, uplifting kind of kind of thing. And I, I did enjoy it. Yeah. Yes, I would agree with that. I think especially now a lot of people are kind of seeking escapism mm. with, due to lockdown. And yeah. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on at the moment around, you know, not just uh, lockdown, but violence. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, you know, things around the economy as well. So I think I would agree with you that if you're kind of expecting something that's going to be really heavy, and it, this is a heavy book, it do, does deal mm. with kind of heavy themes. It's a really humanistic story, I think. Yeah, that's and, a good way to put it. Mm. And I think a lot of that is down to Maeve's mm. narration of the story. I think she does a, a really remarkable job mm-hmm. you know if, if it was me if this if, if this was me reading this story i would be kind of like shouting and <laughs> screaming and just like growling all the way through but she's she's kind of very calm and considered in her approach so mm-hmm. i think it might be worth kind of starting at the beginning of the book so the book essentially starts with her trying to find out how many people in the uk are dying homeless every year and there wasn't one stat of that so I was just wondering what you what you felt about that yes and I will come to that but I just wanted to quickly say because it was something that really stood out to me technically kind of the beginning beginning if we go with like the prologue part she puts into context this work that she was doing in 2018 I think um, yeah so this is from two years ago when, yeah, when she started working on the book yeah this project that Heb was just saying about this prologue sort of puts it in a context that's much more recent so she talks about lockdown, she talks about coronavirus, she talks about the conversations around defund the police. And this prologue is part of what makes it uplifting because she kind of says in it, hopefully the things that you come across in this book won't be as much of an issue anymore because she has noticed positive things. In some ways it's been forced positive things, as in because of the pandemic, the government have been forced to help people get off the streets and you know things that homeless charities and people were told were oh it's just impossible we can't do that suddenly became possible when there was more of a to them a pressing need for that to happen so yeah kind of that beginning part I thought was interesting both for it was good that there is actual change that some of the stuff that we're hearing about later on hopefully is less of an issue and then also kind of in a more abstract way I thought it was quite interesting about kind of how things become out of date and I thought that was interesting looking at a book that has kind of been released after it's in some ways been a bit outdated. Yeah I think that's you know publishing is quite a slow process kind of Mm. writing a story and making sure that it's up to date. So I recently just finished an advanced review copy of Think Again by Adam Grant and that's Mm. again it's a very scientific book it's kind of looking at how we should perhaps change our opinions a lot more often based on kind of new evidence Mm. and he kind of prefaces the book of this all the scientific research i'm quoting in the book is correct at the time of publishing and that's kind of the preface that's brought to this book 
as well. But I still think a lot of it is very relevant to what's happening today. And it's mm-hmm. interesting what you mentioned about the prologue is all this action has been taken around homelessness during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of whether that's going to continue yeah. into the future. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's the other thing. Definitely, yeah. It, it by no means opens the book with, oh, well, you can just enjoy this now because actually none of the problems are real anymore. <laughs> it doesn't do that. Um, it cannot promise that things are even all right at the moment because they're not or that they will stay this way or get better. But it was it was nice. It's sort of, I guess, harking back to what I was just saying about my trepidations for how dark it was going to be. I guess it was a nice kind of easing in of, yeah, there's some difficult stuff here, but we can stay optimistic. We can think about the people and the positives and stuff like that. And I think the other reason that the book works is that it's not lurid or it's not like glamorizing. It would have been. Yeah. So when she goes to talk to one of the grassroots workers, I can't remember his name, and he was very reluctant to speak to her because he was mm. just wondering whether it's just going to be another newspaper hack that's coming to get the lurid details and yeah. be exploitative. And that's very much not the intention and tone of the book. Is it, yeah. it does treat everyone in the book with compassion and it doesn't make any judgmental there's no there's no like judgmental tones in there Mm -hmm. either yeah I completely agree and I think there's a lot in the book about how you have people who haven't experienced homelessness and that includes like okay they've done a night on the streets to see what it feels like no then they're not included if they haven't actually been homeless themselves and the actual homeless people weren't responding well to them you know, giving them advice and telling them this and telling them that when it's like, well, you've not experienced it. You don't actually know what it's like. So that is a big thing in the book. And obviously, well, not necessarily obviously, but Maeve has not experienced that. Um, She is an outsider to this community. But I think she approaches that role that she has in in a really good way. You know, she acknowledges that she's not a part of that community, but she does it well. She definitely doesn't patronise anybody, which I think is one of the things that can be said about about others that haven't experienced homelessness and attempt to help or claim they're helping and things like that. Yeah, I think she has a good understanding of what her place is. And yeah, like you say, how to be compassionate, but not pitying and things like that. Yeah. So I think the approach that Maeve takes in the book, she very much uses individual stories to explain the statistics behind what's happening on the streets so i think the first story is a gentleman passing away in the back garden of his former home and kind of looking at well you know this is how that story happened and going through kind of the mistakes that the frontline services made in that situation and that kind of opens up a a wider tale of where's the funding for this where's the Mm -hmm. resources for that and you know how often is this sort of thing happening yeah, definitely. And kind of connecting that with what we've just been talking about is the fact that this project didn't start as in like her boss said, okay, well, now you're going to investigate um, deaths of homeless people. No, it started off because she heard that story and she was affected by it and she wanted to find out more. And the more it goes on, the more she's wanting to find out more and, you know, wanting to expose and hopefully correct some of the injustices. It's kind of a double story in ways because it is first and foremost for sure about these people living on the streets and their stories 
and also the stories of those who aren't mentioned, you know, kind of what that experience is like. But running through that, you also have the story of her doing this investigation. That's kind of your structure for it. And you do see how her ideas change and how she gets influenced by different things and also how affected she is by it and stuff like that, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I think that is very much true. She kind of, I think there's a running theme through the book is how she can kind of no longer turn a blind eye. Mm. So when she sees someone asking for money or sleeping rough, and I felt that was a big part of why the book worked so well was her own personal journey through what happens during her investigation. Yeah, definitely. And I think personal is one of the big things about it. So you mentioned how, you know, she's using these individual stories to illuminate the statistics and kind of give an idea. And I definitely find that in some ways it does sound like fiction. You know, some of the ways that she introduces the stories, you know, such a body was walking, blah, blah, blah. And and all those sorts of things that you read a book and that you learn about in English as to how to describe (laughs) how everything's going on around you and and stuff like that. It can read in that way. Um, And in some ways, I guess we as, as humans, we respond more to stories than we do to facts and figures and stuff like that. You know, they help us to empathize and see people's perspectives. So both in just a kind of abstract enjoyment, because the whole reason stories are like this, because they're enjoyable in that way, but also in the actual practical getting you to feel and getting you to understand. It works really well that they were written in that way. Yeah, she is. The actual text of the book is just sublime in places. I listened to this a couple of weeks ago, but there's still stories in there that resonate with me. I think one of them was Jane's story. I think she was the, and it's just heartbreaking what happened to her. She kind of, she lost a child very late term pregnancy and that just, it just kicked off a spiral that she was never able to climb out of. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad. It was so, so sad. Yeah, I agree. James was actually one that um, stood out to me. And, you know, as you say, for the story in itself, but also when it kind of went back to her as a child and it said how she loved trampolining, which if uh, my friends are listening, they'll, uh, <laughs> they'll know that. But I am really big on trampolining. I've been doing it for over a decade. It's a big part of my life. And so, yeah, hearing that was um, kind of an extra thing. It's not that I wouldn't have been able to connect with her had it not been for that. As you say, she did have a very sad story is one of the main ones that is focused on it also isn't just said in one chapter you then return to Jane quite a bit later on and and throughout it and um, she is definitely one of the the major figures in the book but yeah I I did there is something about having a personal connection in there to somebody kind of unrelated to anything else that is kind of nice and I'm sure other people will find that with other people um, yeah. in their th- hobbies that they have and interests that they have and, and stuff like that I think one of the good things about how varied everybody is that's covered in there is that, yeah, hopefully there will be something that, that listeners can go, oh, yeah, that, that's like me. And you get an extra little bit of connection. Yeah, I think what she re- realizes is she is actually very interested in people. So mm. bringing out these small details about, as you mentioned, Jane's trampolining. And there's an, another gentleman who applied for a job with, with Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Mm, uh, I was thinking that one in my head when I was saying about it as well. Yeah. And the other gentleman, oh, I should have written down their names, but he was the army veteran who just went through absolute 
hell. I mean, just, you know, diagnosed with cancer, sepsis, you know, all the, all these things that happened to him. And, and I think the other thing, you know, using the different people that happened to is kind of, it also just highlights that there's as many types of people that there are, there's also different types of homelessnesses and cause of homelessnesses. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think the different types of homelessness is quite a big thing in there because that was one of the major obstacles she had with this getting data as to how many people were dying homeless uh, was the fact that there are so many different classifications for what counts that was yeah making it really difficult for her or for charities or for councils or anybody to actually kind of definitively say yeah so uh what kind of just to, to run through the a few different types of there's rough sleeping where you're you're sleeping on the streets sofa surfing so i think that's quite a common one yeah. especially you know in a lot of the stories how they weren't actually sleeping rough on the streets but they didn't have a home to call their yeah. own and then mm-hmm. the the other thing that really struck me as well was the domestic violence cases mm-hmm. yeah. as well people fleeing violence and how they're they're also homeless as well because you know they've not got a place to rent out or a home yeah. of their own yeah and then they were being offered shelters that were going to also put them at risk of violence or certainly make them feel as though they are with the people who are around. Yes. If the thing about the book is that it's a really complicated mm-hmm. area. It's like really, there's a lot of factors. Yeah. I was especially interested by, so the talk that she had when she went and spoke to someone who deals with death certificates and kind of them saying, you know, it's not as simple as we could just put a box on there that said about homeless and kind of listed various different reasons. And, you know, one of them being that they might not want to be always associated with that and stuff like that, that kind of emotional impact that in some way is part of this idea of shame, which is obviously tackled in there that that's not helping and stuff like that. But I thought it was interesting. They talk about kind of a myriad of different complicated issues as to why you couldn't just simply, you know, add a box on the death certificate that would make that counting easy. It's because, you know, there's actual people there. There's a lot more to consider than that. Yeah. So one of my favourite podcasts is more or less mm-hmm. uh, behind the stats and quite often they go into how different things are calculated so mm. she went to speak to the head of a big statistical organization yeah. she went mm. to, talk to talk to the one of the people there so that was also quite fascinating seeing you know how do you count these things and that's yeah. it's really 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 tricky yeah, no, and especially because there's an also a part in the book where she goes on account of homeless people in a city. So basically the way they were working oh, out so their statistics yeah, yeah, was just that they would go out and see how many people they could see sleeping rough in a night and then they'd use that figure and, you know, times it or whatever for how many people were sleeping rough in a year. But obviously that's not counting for, like you say, the sofa surfers, people who are in, you know, temporary accommodation, people who are just hiding you know, they didn't want to be out on the streets. They're in more secluded places, all sorts of stuff like that. There's reasons why that isn't an accurate way to do it. And yet that's kind of what the big figures of how is homelessness doing at the moment are being counted on. Yeah. And it's kind of, they're doing it on one night of the year. Mm, yeah. They're also telling people, well, don't go into kind of like really dark areas. Yes. Of course <laughs> there is that. Yeah. It's, you can kind of, 
it turned a little bit into it almost turned a little bit into um like a the beginning of a horror story when she was mm-hmm. out about with the counters because it's kind of like oh, do I go down this alley my my torches run out of battery they're using their phones to kind of like look into different basements and things like that so yeah that was a fascinating part part of the mm. book is there are real practical difficulties with tackling this problem even if the will and the funding was there it's still going to be quite tricky to find out what is actually happening yeah mm. so we've kind of like jumped uh, around um yeah, sorry. <laughs> different different topics because like the book covers so much mm. so i've written down just a few different notes so one of the areas for me that's quite interesting is the lack of houses because that's something mm. I've got first hand experience with working as a housing solicitor yeah. for a while. And I think it's absolutely criminal that there's these commercial buildings that are being left empty mm. that could be put to better use. And I think it's also criminal that you know, a lot of the buildings that are being made aren't the sort of houses and homes that the people in the local community need. Yeah. So one of the things that's brought up in the book is how these schemes that go up quite often as part of the planning permission that you need to build a certain number of affordable homes and they just don't do it. They'll just kind of like give the you know money to the council mm-hmm. instead. And I think that's absolutely, it was so infuriating. It's, it's something yeah. that you see time and time again. No, definitely. And I was kind of struck by um, so how this group was using an old abandoned doctor's surgery, I think, as a shelter. And then they were, they were getting sued by the NHS for using this building that no one else is using for anything else. And just the only reason that they wanted them out was, well, we own it, so we don't want you there. It sort of seems to, you know, there was no kind of, oh, this building is being used for something else. There was none of that. It was just, uh, we own it, we don't want you there kind of thing. And yeah, this is doctor's surgery this is the nhs and it's it's, (laughs) instead of helping people they were wanting to just keep it's mine so i want it is the impression i got at least from that chapter yeah and kind of you do there are good news stories in that regard kind of i remember Mm. gary neville in manchester i think is either it must have been the christmas before last where he was renovating some buildings and some homeless people were there and he just said to him, you know what, I do need to renovate this building. You stay in there until kind of the new year and we'll try and oh, right. see. Yes. So there is a way of approaching it. If the NHS badly needed that building to be renovated or something like that, mm-hmm. I can kind of understand it. But if you're not using it, mm-hmm. land is such a precious resource, man. There's There's mm-hmm. got to be some way of forcing people who've got empty buildings into offering them up to the public good. And I don't, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know what that. I don't know what that how how that would work no i think it's just hoping that people would actually you know have a conscience themselves isn't it really but unfortunately that doesn't seem to be the case i've um, yeah. kind of got a big bugbear about the construction industry in this country yeah. are, are you listening to the grenfell inquiry podcast i'm not no i'm vaguely aware but i'm not listening to the podcast specifically. so instead of kind of doing uh, job applications and stuff like that <laughs> i'll watch the live stream of the the grenfell yeah. inquiry evidence and just you know something that has struck me about the construction industry is that they're just passing the buck off in terms of like safety and things like that onto kind of other people that's not my responsibility someone else is supposed to do that and I think very much 
kind of the same case in a lot of the issues that were handled in the book, especially kind of around counting how many people done. Well, that's yes. not my responsibility. Someone else should be doing that. Definitely. That sort of and one of the big things was about having for you to get housing support in a certain area. You needed to prove that you had a yeah. connection to that area for a long yeah. amount of time. And obviously there were many different reasons why that was not okay. People fleeing domestic abuse were going away and therefore weren't having a connection to that area. Or people who'd prisoner. been in prison, yeah, yeah people yeah. who'd been in prison were then losing their connection to the area that they lived in before they were in prison. But then the people in prison were like, oh, well, you've left prison, you're not our responsibility. The places they're going to, you're not our responsibility. And it's that idea that everyone's just working separately and giving it to each other as opposed to working together and going, okay, these are the people that somebody needs to help. How are we together going to be doing this? And that's why I think a lot of the work is being done by grassroots yeah. organisations, some fantastically inspirational people mm-hmm. that are doing really difficult, really challenging work with little or no funding. And they're just, you know, I think a lot of them are doing it because they're really angry about yeah. the, 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 the yeah. state of things, that, that fury and, you know, that love that they feel for their fellow fellow human beings mm-hmm. does drive them to achieve some quite extraordinary things really definitely for sure and um, there are wonderful people that were doing amazing things and never getting knocked down by or certainly not for very long by decisions that were made and things that happened especially because again this started out with death And, you know, you have these people that are doing so much work with homeless people and a lot of them are dying. You know, there was someone who was just always in black because of the amount of funerals she goes to, really dedicating their lives to this, which is is very admirable. But maybe something that you listen and think, but I can't do that. But I don't think the book is asking you to. (laughs) Obviously, if you you want to and you feel that inspired, but it's not asking you to. It's asking kind of like she sums up at the end, things like, well, being careful about where you cast your vote and what your elected politicians and councillors and stuff are going to be doing about funding and about these issues, and of course, a lot of other issues and a lot of the connected issues. One of the main things is that housing is connected to so many other things being defunded. You know, domestic abuse is just one of them. Rehab facilities, mental health services. Mental health services. Exactly. So, yes, think about that. That is a big thing that everybody can do to make a difference. And also just smiling at people when you see them on the street saying hi, things like that. There was one of the most amazing guys in the book called David who was basically about to take his own life on a park bench when the park ranger had come over and said, hey, what are you doing? And sat and chatted with him. And this guy didn't think anything of it. They they catch up with him later and he kind of, not had forgotten about it, but hadn't really thought about it, whereas this man had changed David's life, completely saved it and changed it. And even if you don't feel comfortable doing that there is also an acknowledgement in the book that it could be putting yourself in a dangerous situation to do things like that late at night in the park um for example but the things like smiling treating people like they're human as well as those bigger making sure the people you're electing into power are doing what they're meant to be doing and um, the sort of things that you can that you can do as well as you know being grateful for the grassroots organizations and supporting them where you can as well yeah i think one of the big calls of the book is to see people and to treat yeah. them with humanity and there there's a really fascinating bit in the book where she yeah. goes to talk to a psychologist and mm-hmm. if you weren't about to just bring it up i was going to <laughs> yeah 
when you see a homeless person, you don't see them as a person. You might as be looking at a vegetable. And I was just thinking, flipping heck, man, that is, that's unbelievable how we dehumanize homeless people. You walk by and ignore people and and that sort of thing. So that kind of hit home with me a bit. For sure, because it was shocking. It really was. So it was kind of an accidental thing that they discovered. They had people in MRI machines and they were showing them different pictures. And they were showing them pictures of people and of objects and different parts of the brain light up for each of those. But what they found when they showed a picture of someone who was sleeping rough was on the streets, the part of the brain that was lighting up was the object part rather than the person part. And that this wasn't just, you know, really horrible people that were doing this. This was sort of a way above average trend with everybody and part of the thing about why it's not just horrible people the way that the scientist explained it was because sometimes we can find it really hard seeing that situation and don't want to put ourselves in their shoes and therefore our brains make us think that they're not really a person that we can empathize with because then it would just be too hard to try and see ourselves as them and connect with them so not in any way saying that that's a good thing like oh okay we'll let you off with that but as in he was saying it isn't about you being evil and horrible but it is something that you need to check and that you need to challenge and he actually found that by asking these people something like do you think they prefer it was something or broccoli I can't remember what the other one was and just by making them do that making them then think about the person that they were seeing as a person who might have different tastes in foods then reset that it was the reaction to people part of the brain that was that was lighting up you know it's just something simple like that just allowing yourself to see them as people and to empathize that was important yeah we've kind of been talking for about half an hour about the book Mm -hmm. it is complicated issue there are a lot of stories in there and she does speak to a lot of interesting people i think yeah uh, in terms of the narration itself we've already mentioned i think Mm -hmm. she does a superb job of keeping the right tone in terms of the stories that she's telling i agree i think she's just a really good narrator anyway i really enjoyed listening to her you know sort of if if she were to change career and become an audiobook narrator i'd be all right with that um but as well as that i think it was important that she was the one reading it as opposed to someone else you know as well as it just being written yes. in the first person it is yeah. very much like I said that other strand about it being her journey so there was that part of it where it's personal to her but also because she's the one that's lived through talking to all these people who has written down these words because they're the words that she's felt is best describing what she needs to describe therefore it works best that she is the one to read them we've spoken before about kind of when anyone reads anything out loud you're always going to put your own interpretation and twist on it and therefore it's important that what you're getting there is her interpretation therefore what she kind of meant to put down i think it's very good that as well as being an amazing investigative journalist she's also a very good reader because that meant they could give her the role to a narrator and i think that was great yeah i really enjoyed this book Mm -hmm. Uh, i found it illuminating i found it fascinating i found it anger reducing and frustrating but there is hope in the book is kind of there is a call to action in terms of trying to treat people with consideration you know thinking really carefully about who you're voting for and Mm. in terms of austerity and making sure that the people that are making decisions are you know we we stay on their case and not let this dip as well so do you have any kind of closing thoughts exactly what you said 
Yeah, thank you for suggesting it. It definitely isn't something that I would have chosen to listen to, but I am glad that I did. I took a lot away from it. So yeah, and I, yeah, I do recommend it. Yeah, so this, I think for me, this is really highly, highly recommended. So yeah, please, please do listen to the book. There are some hard moments in it, but the, yeah, it is you know illuminating and there's hope in there as mm-hmm. well. So that's yeah. the carry-free message for me. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Yeah, hope is the word. That's it, guys. Just to let everyone know, the episodes are going to be coming out every two weeks. And I read something quite interesting in one of the podcasting newsletters that I subscribe to. If you subscribe to the podcast, that doesn't mean you have to pay anything. Subscribing comes for free. So if you're worried yeah. that you need to kind of pay us any money, uh, no, if you're, if you're subscribing, you don't need to do that. No, nope, you just get notified when we've put a new one out, I think. Yeah, and Apple Podcasts are kind of changing the way they're saying. They're taking away the word subscribe and using the word follow instead. So follow us on Apple yes. Podcasts or whatever podcast app that you use and be notified when the next episode is made available. Brilliant, yeah. Okay, guys, thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.